Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Today, we're clearing up Bitcoin misconceptions with my friend Konza. He is an Australian, but also an Austrian. He's an Austro-Libertarian writer and organizer of Mises Seminar Australia. So he joins me to talk about praxeology and common Bitcoin misconceptions. We get into various ideas, such as this idea that it's not merely just preference, uh, why accuracy is important, classifying Bitcoin, as well as clearing up inaccurate analogies about Bitcoin as stored energy or stored time, or notably in recent times, this idea of Bitcoin as violence or a weapon. The show brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, and Swan is launching a new service. It's called Swan Premium. And for those of you who sign up soon, it's got a free 12-month trial. So it's called Swan Premium. It's normally going to cost $20 a month, but it is free if you sign up and join the waitlist. What is Swan Premium? You're going to receive exclusive research reports, educational content, discounts on Bitcoin products, and privileged access to many Swan events. So go and sign up. It's over at swan.com premium. Are you ready for something huge? BTC Prague is coming in June 2023. The dates are June 8th to June 10th. Prague is a beautiful city. I've really enjoyed it when I've been there. So it's a great opportunity and it's quite cost effective also. So this is going to be a three-day event with a awesome lineup of speakers and companies and there'll just be so many people to network with it'll be educational and fun i'm going to be one of the hosts i'll be an mc for the main stage for one of the days and you can expect a relaxed summer atmosphere there's famous czech beer but don't get me to pour one for you and go to btcprague.com use code lavera for a discount there when it comes to securing our Bitcoin, there's a need for good Bitcoin hardware. CoinKite.com make a range of this available, most notably the Cold Card Mark IV, which is the latest and greatest. It has a range of features. You can set it up without even phoning home to the manufacturer. You can spin it up on your own, just plugged into the wall. So that's a really cool feature. It has a range of other features. You can use it in single signature mode or multi-signature mode. You can use the various air gap features also so you can use the sd card or use the nfc function to move transactions or multi-sig data back and forth so it's a fantastic device i am a big fan of it you can get it over at coinkite.com and use the code lavera for a discount there konza welcome to the show Stefan, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm a big fan of your work online. Uh, as uh, as our friend Safety says, you're like the attack dog. You know, the guy who just kind of knows every little point about every little uh, <laughs> quote. Uh, quote uh, but whether it's Mises or Rothbard or some other Austro-Libertarian legend, and uh, you know, I wanted to chat. I wanted to get you on and you know hear a bit about you know your perspective as as an Australian Austro-Libertarian. And uh, get into some Bitcoin misconceptions because I think there's a bunch out there. Um, but yeah, so for people who haven't heard you, of course, I recommend uh, my friend Safety's episode as well. But just for anyone who hasn't heard that one, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, well, uh, probably about 14, 15 years. So I'm like a product of the Ron Paul revolution. You can probably see the the image in the background. Um, kind of, he was my first, you know, the, the pathway introduction to these ideas and very much gone down that rabbit hole uh, around 2007 and from there it was no labor of love but like almost <laughs> autistic or obsessive with just <laughs> hey there's this new new, new you know to, to, to throw myself under the bus just like the love of passion of you know I was intellectually honest is, is kind of a key principle I have and being open to reason and it was just going down this rabbit hole of like you know my word there's this whole school of knowledge like why does Ron say what he says and, and you know I was parroting that for a while but it was then really like thinking about 
I got tripped up on, on a on a forum, you know, one of Ron Paul forums or you know, one of those in, uh, fields way back. And it was okay. How, why does he think what he thinks? And it was Austrian School of Economics, you know, what Mises and you know Rothbard. Uh, and so from then on, it was instead of you know studying university, it was it was up at three a.m. reading journal articles, just devouring uh, and getting my mind blown in a variety of different ways. And um, you know, just that, and on top of that, with libertarianism and how they pair together. Yeah, so it's. It's born out of a passion for justice and an original point of going, I'm completely ignorant and being kind of uh, seeing the light of, of what Ron was saying, but it was also where he was saying it. It was kind of his proof of work. You know, he's a in the Republican debates and he is, uh, you know, on the, on the stage with the, the Republicans and calling them all warmongers. Um, and making these some you know emphatic points that just hit home to myself you know being a young person who was more idealistic um you're like wow that that makes complete sense oh the, the free market stuff is a bit radical but you then learn there's you know you go down the pathway and you know give it a benefit of the, give it a benefit of the doubt and then wait you learn you know you, you read human action and you read you know economics one lesson and and you know Bastiat's the law and you, you get all these introductory texts and uh, away, away you go. Yeah, so that's kind of my bit of the background about the Austrian economic side and libertarian side, and it and dovetails. You know, I looked at this the other day. Um, you know, everyone's kind of the story of when you first, you know, <laughs> heard about Bitcoin and where, you know where, where were you? And it was in the Mises Community Forums, on like August seven, two thousand seven, uh, two thousand ten. Sorry, and someone had piped up like, "Oh, it's gonna, you know, not gonna be paying taxes. You, you know, it's almost gonna end the state." And I kind of, I was critical of that, but, you know, and I think that's probably, I was kind of looking back on it when I did the other day is that we've got the archives are still up. If you want to check them out at Mises.community, it was like, well, I was kind of right. Like, you know, I don't think it's still going to end the state. It's going to provide the the, the rich foundation uh, for the intellectual, the, the, yeah, the intellectual foundation to be outside the system. And, you know, FU money is a good, you know, freedom money is, you know, the, the good kind of monikers that symbolize that um, or summarize that. But it allows, um, so I was like, all right, because there's taxation, you know, in Swedish cantons, you know, accepting Bitcoin uh, for taxes. And so it's like, there's still an avenue, I think, for these liberty related arguments in Austrian economics to help make these this case that against the state, because Bitcoin's all about separating money and state. So it's, it's you know, there's a lot of um, you know, symbi- symbiosis there. And, and, you know, partly I was right specifically, but wrong in all these other ways in terms of I, you know, had a similar mindset of, you know, the Peter Schiff argument, like, oh, not so much value, you know, value is intrinsic, but that like it needed an objective use value using Mises regression theorem, tracing that back to a commodity or like an other use case. Uh, and I was wrong. Uh, Conrad Graff, I give a lot of homage to and respect to, uh, convinced me why I was wrong. And, um, you know, early 2013 or so, but yeah, that, that's kind of the um, the origin story of sorts um, and sitting on the sidelines for quite some time, you know, FOMOing in a little later, um, you know, not this class, but previous class. So uh, not an OG, uh, but uh, have been on the sidelines for quite some time and, and very much fully loving the community and, um, you know, the pathway we're all, we're all on now. Yeah, for sure. And I think you mentioned Conrad and he was also one of my early influences, if you will, right? Like back in 2013, when I was a noob and I was learning, it was Conrad Graf, Tour de Mista, Trace Mayer, 
Roger Veer back then before he went, you know, Bcash. And of course, you know, my friends, Michael Goldstein, Pierre Richard, I think they were probably some of my initial influences at the same time that I was talking and writing about Bitcoin. And so I think one thing that I want to hit as well is this whole, well, we're going to get into praxeology and all of this stuff. But I think the high level way I want to come at it is when I talk to people about Bitcoin, or sometimes I see this sentiment out there, people talking online about Bitcoin, or they'll say, oh, you libertarian people, you're just kind of coming at it with your ideology. And, you know, you just kind of, you kind of want it to be a certain way. But, you know, they sort of make this argument as though it's like preference, right? I'm curious from your point of view, why is it not, you know, just a preference or certain aspects of it? Not like everything about the Bitcoin of you is, you know, ordained in stone or whatever, but... Why is it that certain aspects of this are not merely a preference? Yeah, great question. And just before kind of diving into that, I wish there was a bit more, you know, you've discussed this as well, like in terms of libertarians, angles like, oh, if you're you're coming from an ideological kind of point of view, it'd be like, well, (laughs) I wish there was a bit more of the case um, where, you know, with libertarians we've engaged with, um, you know, it's like this is almost the solution of separation of money and state. Before, you know, you'd, you'd hear about, like just a, a bit of a tangent, but like a, the taxi cartel, I'd be like, that's a, one of the last things that, um, you know, would get wound back. But then practically speaking, you know, the existence of Uber comes along and it's like obliterates that, you know, passionate discussions theoretically with friends like who heard about Uber early on. They're like, that's insane. Like, you you know, you, you're going to jump into a random stranger's car and it's a much bigger proposition to um, convince them and then literally booked it um and he came along his lawyer and his mind was blown and and then like <laughs> practically speaking you don't need to make those little arguments anymore similarly with bitcoin and you know separation of money and state like oh you know what do you mean you get rid of central bank like that's you know crazy we of course we need you know um the state to define what money is and uh you know all that angle and it's like well can bitcoin the practical example it's like proof of work it's like you know <laughs> it's there uh it's working medium exchange and we'll go into um that a bit more but it's um yeah just on that tangent i thought yeah it'd, it'd be good some of the libertarians don't haven't been as um that practical mindset of like we've been pushing to you know various communities where amongst in and, and i wish there was more uptake um and Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that later on about why. But um, yeah, coming back to your question um, about, you know, why is it not just a preference, like a personal opinion, right? You always hear the, oh, that's just your opinion. Um, and it's like, it's that's, yeah, it's one, uh, you know, one thought, your individual hot take uh, versus my own individual hot take. And it's this kind of sea of almost, there's no objective real truth you can lock down on. It's a bit nihilistic. It's a bit, well, you know, oh, that's just your your opinion. So the rich body is a praxeology, which yeah, we can get into. It's just the logic and science of human action. There's a lot of different ways you can come at it from a philosophical point of view, like a Kantian take. So it's like a priori, the knowledge is prior to experience. Um, and you've got a posteriori, which is knowledge that's, uh, you know, post-experience. So you know, it requires experience. Um, or there's an Aristotelian kind of philosophical take. It's all about it's self-evident or it's based on axioms. Um, you can kind of think of self-evident truths. So with the, you know, the, the commentary that Austrians and, you know, and libertarians, um, you know, praxeologists come up with, it's, it's all is based. It's descriptive. It's not ought. It's, uh, it's, it's not prescriptive. It's essentially 
you know, value-free, taking a scientific approach. Um, and it's all about not having, you know, imparting, uh, you know, unscientific, you know, premises or preferences in the body of, on the field of knowledge that that is. So kind of the praxeological method begins at, you know, with the self-evident reality of human action and its immediate implications, um, you know, establishes universal val- universally valid laws of human action, laws that you know, claim validity without respect to the place, time, race and nationality or class of the actor. And yeah, the easiest way to summarize it is, is it furnishes laws in the form of if X and Y remains unchanged, then Z will result. So it's at its core. Yeah. It's, it's, is based and, um, did and act, follows the axiomatic deductive approach. So it's like based on logic, it's akin to applied logic and, you know, economics being one of the biggest, best developed branches of praxeology. Um, and it, you know, from that, you know, you start at the, the, the premise that, you know, or the axiom that humans act, they use, um, you know, means to obtain, um, you know, certain ends, um, you know, there's a, the fact of scarcity is involved. There's all these different little avenues can add, but at the, the core of it, it's not an opinion in the sense of if the process of, you know, there's no flaw in the process of deduction. So it's not like we just like, ah, it's, uh, you know, our opinions are like, you know, for want a better word, God given or like, you know, absolute. It's like there's a deduction process. And if there is a flaw in that deduction, like pointing it out, you know, is valid. But if there isn't one, it's conclusions that are reached, you know, along that line of chain of reasoning, um, they yield like essentially must be valid out prior because the validity uh, ultimately goes back to that. Um, yeah, it ultimately goes back to nothing but the indisputable action of axiom. And it kind of helps, the, the, there's an element of like a mental tool, right? So, um, and we can go into some examples in a, in a little bit, but it's, you know, if the situation changes, like you might be operating, you know, from, you know, Robinson Crusoe, kind of like a an individual perspective, trying to make the principles clear in a Robinson Crusoe world, you know, this is, you know, this is what happens. Um, it's obviously I prior true only for the, that circumstance and what it is. So it's like, think of it as like a formula that's being cast of sorts or, you know, that's like a mathematical proof essentially. And then yes, you know, what in the real world, does this apply or not? And, and that's, you know, I guess the, the idea of economics as praxeology and it's, you don't need to, if for instance, like the, on the other hand, the situation hasn't changed and it can be identified as real perceived and conceptual conceptualized by like real actors and then the conclusions are obviously you know the a priori true propositions about the world as it is and that's the key distinction between so schools of economic thought like our economics there's there's variety of different schools that kind of is the key difference between the austrian school and you know the, the chicago school or the monetarists the keynesians um you know neoclassical uh, marxists it's that the ultimate disagreement between Austrians and their col- economic colleagues is their pronouncements cannot be deduced. Also, the Austrians' pronouncements can be deduced from the axiom, axiom, axiom of action, and they steer, stand in clear-cut contradictions to the propositions. Also, the colleagues stand there, the arguments of Keynes, Marx, you know, Friedman, it's all... Uh, standing in clear-cut contradiction to the proposition that the uh, that can be deduced from the action of axiom. So often yeah. it's like needing testing to be done. We need to go 
get a grant, you know, often handed out by a central bank or university. It's like, okay, we didn't go test um, to see if the minimum wage, you know, uh, increases or decreases, you know, uh, employment. And, you know, it's absurd proposition, but there's some other clear cut praxeological laws, academic laws. Right. We can- yeah. So let me summarize. I think, so Austrians are, it relates to the method of reasoning, And I guess it comes in that bucket of epistemology, right? It's how we know what we know, right? That's kind of the bucket that we're dealing with here. And so, as as I'm sure you're very well aware, a great book to read on this is Economic Science and the Austrian Method by Hans-Hermann Hopper. Great book. He really spells out very clearly the chain of reasoning. And so, what we're trying to get at here is this idea that it's not just merely subjective preference. It's actually a kind of objective reasoning style, and it's deductive. So... The idea is we start from certain ideas, like so for example, man acts purposefully, right? We start with that, right? Because if you didn't want to change something, then you wouldn't act. So therefore, you, you have a reason, you're acting purposefully. And then from there, you can, you can sort of reason out various other ideas, like this idea of the law of diminishing marginal returns or you know, various ideas like that, right? So could you give us a couple examples of that chain of reasoning so that people can be a bit more clear about what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was probably one of our oversights with the um, Sephardine, you know, giving elaborate all the clear-cut examples. So yes, some examples of those typical economic propositions and you know, one being, so whenever two people A and B engage in voluntary exchange, they both must expect to profit from it and they must have reverse preference uh, orders for the goods and services exchange so that A values what he receives from B more than more highly than he get more highly than what he gives to to him and B must evaluate the same things the other way around. You know, all consider that you know whenever an exchange is not voluntary but coerced, one party profits at the expense of another. Um, you've got obviously the law of marginal utility so that whenever the supply of a good increases by one additional unit, provided each unit is regarded as equal serviceability by a person, uh, the value attached to each unit must decrease. And then any additional unit can only be employed as a means for the attainment of a goal that is considered less valuable than the le- least valued good satisfied by a unit of good uh, if the supply were one unit shorter. And then you've got Ricardian law of association. You know, there's minimum wage, like as an example for minimum wage laws are essentially when they're enforced, they require wages to be higher than existing market wages uh, and then involuntary employment will result. And then one last one is like a quantity of money. So whenever the quantity of money is increased, while the demand for money to be held as cash, cash reserve on hand is unchanged, uh, the purchasing power of money will fall. Um, so similarly, like if X, you know, the quantity of money is increased um, uh, while the demand, so then Y, while the demand for money to be held as cash reserve is unchanged, then the result will be, yeah, purchasing power money will fall. Yeah. Yeah. So the, there's some, I guess, clear cut examples. Yeah. And so just to contrast an Austrian way of thinking with, let's say, what you might see at university, they'll sort of, I mean, they'll get some parts right. They may say, okay, we're trying to do things under this idea of ceteris paribus, right? Which is that same idea, which is that Latin saying for basically all other things equal, we're going to try to assess this. But then what happens in typical university, in the fiat universities, is they will get into these crazy economic models where they'll start with this crazy idea of a perfect and then relax assumptions or they'll start and then do all these really complicated computer mathematical statistical modeling and then come out and crunch out some idea that oh see 
see in this example historically at this time in this place when we change this one thing but the problem is there's no alternate reality to go to and test right it's not like we can go and test oh imagine australia with a minimum wage of ten dollars versus australia with a minimum wage of eleven dollars well there is no you know it doesn't exist like that and at best what you can find is maybe like a so-called natural experiment like let's say maybe two neighboring towns maybe one town has this rule another town has that other rule but fundamentally it just that's the reasoning issue that's the problem with the reasoning that i think an austrian would take issue with that and say hey actually you're not reasoning from a priori you're not reasoning in a deductive way right mm. and the, often the premise there for that they're modeling it's whether it's mathematical mathematical modeling or you know the premise of like a p- perfect competition or things that aren't, aren't you know real per se it's Mises has a good point that there's there's no constants in human action and so there's always a with the you know, these formulas you know it's it's a there's a human element to it and you know i think you know, why do, why do we think in this method or like that which is more appropriate so Mises have got this quip that he used to use in his lectures is kind of you know, obviously the purpose of uh, the end of science is to know and understand reality, right? And, you know, we accept the fact, Austrians, praxeologists accept the fact that there's a different methodology required for the human sciences, like slash social sciences versus the natural sciences. And a good, you know, quip that Mises, sorry, Mises has is to capture those difference between the natural sciences and the, the, the human sciences. You throw a rock in water, it sinks. You throw a stick in water, it floats but throw a man in water and he must decide to sink or swim. So he was not denying like yet the scientific nature of economics with that tale of human volition, but rather he's getting across the essential defining character of human sciences and that you must study man and his purposes and plans. Um, and with, yeah, the modeling and all that, it's like, well, uh, there is no constant, you know, human action, you know, humans can adjust uh, to those tests and, you know, uh, the models, generally speaking, uh, yeah, there's no knowledge to be gained from that. And, and there hasn't been, you know, in terms of the field of economics, the, the rich history, uh, there isn't really any valid um, knowledge that's been gained from like doing empirical studying and tests. Yeah. And I'm curious your view as well, because while we're talking about what actual economics is, what let's say the TV economics is, right? There's these macro economists who come on TV and basically these are financial talking heads. And so they'll get on and say, oh, look, this guy's an economist and he's from whatever. And can you explain how you're viewing that as opposed to how, you know, is that economics? Yes, it's an interesting one. Like almost like trying to distinguish from <laughs> another example is that um sorry mate it's going in, in many different directions here so like there's at the essence of it it's, there's theory and there's history and so Mises has got a he's got a book called that <laughs> yeah exactly right and one of his most underrated ones um tends to be the the name of it but it, it it kind of hits on the point that he goes there's no such thing as historical method of economics or discipline of institutional economics there's economics and there's economic history the two must never be confused. All theories of economics are necessarily valid in every instance in which all the assumptions presuppose are given. Of course, there are no, they have no practical significance in situations where the conditions have not been established. Uh, so the theorems referring to indirect exchange are not, apl- are not applicable to conditions where there is no indirect exchange, but that does not impair their validity. And what he's really getting as 
that distinction. And so when I, he then has a letter quip about Milton Friedman. So he's asked about, um, you know, oh, what, you know, almost what do you think of, um, you know, Milton Friedman as an economist? And he's like, he's, he's not an economist. He's a, he's a historian. And so like statistics modeling, all that stuff is, you know, history is, is economic history. So Milton from being a positivist or empiricist, um, you know, that going back to that fundamental distinction before about, and what's a priori, what's, you know, what's a posteriori, like your methodology, epistemological dualism. So it's like focusing on that um, distinction. There's a human sciences, one that's got a valid method, and then the natural sciences with a different valid method. It's a scientific method for the natural sciences, and particularly when it's like for universal laws and in human action, uh, you know, praxeology, um, which is the logic uh, and science of human action, is... Uh, a, a massive player so where freeman isn't that's so it's, it's almost it's hard to distinguish where yes like okay maybe they're in the economics profession but it's almost easy to call them like they're not economists uh doing <laughs> economics and you know the distinction so frederick bastard also has a a good you know quip around you know the good economists and bad economists the good economists see the whole picture so it's the seen and the unseen and you have the bad economists which is basically all of them uh, who are calling themselves that, where they focus on, you know, very minute kind of like hyper-specialization in one particular area. And they give it all these different names, yeah, institutional economics, whatever it is, historical method of economics is different stuff that really isn't applicable. And it's just looking at one, you know, often the scene and not not understanding the whole big picture, the the unseen as well. Right. Yeah. Because there's a big world out there in terms of what could have been right the unseen or i believe uh per byland also has a book kind of trying to explicitly call that that out as the unrealized that's another example right like we can imagine okay imagine this world without this particular regulation or without that monetary intervention what kind of world could we have had what kind of businesses would have been created what kind of jobs would be there what kind of technologies would have been invented what kind of prosperity would we have had in this unrealized world that we unfortunately didn't get to see because of government intervention and so i think that's an interesting way to think about it, or at least clarify and understand now that's not to say there are not market commentators who maybe have you know an excellent knowledge of the market of you know the gold or the copper market or the oil market or something things like this where they are very intricately familiar with you know the market for oil around the world or something like this and maybe they can offer an interesting comment because they have a good knowledge of that but at the same time the whole point of all this stuff is that we need prices well firstly we need private property rights which give us exchange which gives us prices which reflects a lot of the information in ways that no one human mind could have done even if you were some super genius yeah absolutely and yeah prices are it, you, you nailed it when it's like the private property rights angle, like you need property um, before you can get prices. And it's, uh, yeah, some some really good interesting exchanges you can now down there where people might, you know, reflect on prices as like the, the signal and it's as a the communication mechanism. And Holzman Guido goes into it um, fairly well where he's like, it's not actually the, which talks about bigger, about, about bigger point we could talk about in terms of uh, misconceptions, uh, you know, metaphors and analogies where pricing, it's, it's more the anticipation for entrepreneurs anticipating how much, you know, they can get. Um, there's a historical price that is, it's, it's historical. It can potentially help inform, but there isn't necessarily any direct connection to prices that, 
you know, will abide by in future and the entrepreneurs will put in place to try and get their products. And so like he kind of nows down whether it's a, there's a hierarchy and kind of notion uh, around what is communicated by prices. And it's like, he's like, no, it's not so much that it's more the, the existence of private property, which is the the kind of bedrock of it. The necessary precondition, if you will. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's get into that. You were talking about this idea of misconception. So this is one topic I wanted to hit is I think in the, let's call it Bitcoin Twitter world or kind of podcast circuit, there, there are some misconceptions that kind of get propagated around. And I think sometimes that's because people are making analogies. And I understand sometimes that's useful to spark the curiosity in somebody. Like, let's say somebody is not in this world already. They're not interested in Bitcoin. And if maybe you make some analogy and it pulls someone in, it, it kind of it energizes them to think about it. But then the downside could be that it's imprecise and th- and then it's leading people in a wrong way. Like, you know, the map is not the territory, right? So there's this idea mm-hmm. that they kind of, you kind of get pulled in on this idea, but then actually you, you realize it's not like that. So I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the common Bitcoin misconceptions that you see? Yeah. Great question. And before I dive in straight on the tangent, it's um the essence of why, and I'm, I'm, I get, I can be appeared to being, being hypercritical or very, I have a preference for accuracy or like I appreciate it. And partly that is the reason for that is, yes, there's this Bastiat quote, um, which is the worst thing can happen to a movement or a good cause is not to be skillfully attacked, but ineptly defended. And absolutely, yes, like metaphors, you know, uh, analogies, there's, there's a value to that, certainly, and, you know, peaking interest. But there's also a risk where, you know, maybe if someone hasn't done the work per se yet and, understand oh that's like that's a good way of you know framing it or trying to pique that interest but if then they take it literally uh, and then there's you know some maybe things that aren't so good that come from that so just on the terminology like the benefits of using clear terminology you know as an essential to understanding so Bombawak so yeah early Austrian uh, student of Menger uh, the founder of Austrian school he kind of goes on you know for and since for it would be an absurd undertaking to banish from the language of economic theory every manner of speaking that is not literally correct correct but it also would be sheer pedantry to prescribe every figure of speech particularly since uh, we could not say the hundredth part of what we have to say if we refuse if we refused ever to take recourse to a metaphor uh, one requirement is essential that economic theory avoid the error of confusing a practical habit indulge in for the sake of expediency with scientific truth and ironically in his memoirs Mises also accuses Bombawak uh, in in their dispute over Cantillian effects uh, of being led astray by the idea of friction uh, and other metaphors from the physical sciences but so there's a few misconceptions um, with that with that disclaimer out of the way yeah there's a few we can kind of nail now down. Now, whether we want to tackle them later on, but obviously the the Bitcoin is violence one is probably the do we say the best to last? There's you know Bitcoin is energy, which we can kind of go into. You know, it's digital energy. Uh, Bitcoin is stored time. Um, so there, there's a few there, and I know there's other misconceptions. You know, maybe from a pre-coiner perspective, like where there's the usual fud. So fear, uncertainty, and doubt about talking about. You, th- you know, thinking a whole Bitcoin is all that is. There's no sats, not, you know, 100 million, not aware of that. Also not going to focus on the misconceptions from a technical perspective. I know there's some good points about, you know, it's not it's like a wallet. It's more of a key, instead it's a keychain. That's a better framing as opposed to wallet. 
you know, miners are chronologers instead. And it's not the, I think the right one is like, it's not the blockchain, it's the time chain. But yes, we can get particularly about any of those, but I think um, no, that's been handled a lot better. A lot of those are everywhere else. But specifically on on some of these um, misconceptions, yeah, where would you like to start? Would you- yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think the stored time one is a good one to talk about because I think we'll kind of get into like, what is money? Why do we hold it? And what more precisely is it as opposed to this idea of stored time? Now, to be clear, we're not attacking uh, my friend Gigi, right? Like I like his piece and his, his piece about Bitcoin is time is not about this idea. I think I've seen other people, though, put out this idea and sort of promulgate this analogy that, oh, it's kind of like you can store your time with Bitcoin. And it's like uh, it's an overly loose, imprecise way of framing it so what's the issue with this idea of bitcoin as storing your time yes and that's it it goes like it's interesting because it's all about trying to like economize right like economizing time so like okay people talk about saving time and it's interesting because it's not time itself that can be economized rather is like the attitude of how to spend time you know choosing this way over that way but yeah, refer which really more refers to the content of action and experience experience in time rather than time you know to the time itself so time itself really is is it's like a given fact which can be addressed in different ways but never altered you know it's the ultimate basis of preference so like the preferring is in the how the where the doing you know of what the with whom of how to quote unquote spend time but is spent somehow and and how that <laughs> and how that somehow is the sphere of choice and you know human action so there is that. So in a way, it's also it's not really economized. You can't economize it directly. You know, the easiest way to think about this is go ahead, try not to spend some time and save it for later instead. Um, <laughs> so, right? You yeah. can't. So I, yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, it's like nailing I, down yeah. that. Um, but all this talk about saving time is obviously metaphorical. None of this throws any actual effect on time. You know, it's a metaphor for trying to make the best use of it uh, as it is passing. Um, but all it is ever going to do is pass and that's inalterable. Um, but the risk is treating it as a resource. And at, and you have seen similar, yes, um, that Bitcoin is a quote unquote, a claim on time. And yeah, so like, I, I think it's like linked to obviously like a, almost Bitcoin, the timestamp server is one way it's been characterized um, is is like there's a link as a reference to time, obviously, um, you know, difficult adjustment is a different, te- there's a technical layer versus the economic layer. Gotcha. So, so let me let me try to frame this then. So the, the typical way it might have been framed is this idea that, oh, look, see, you work so hard for your fiat dollars and those dollars are going down in time. And then it's kind of framed like, oh, see, why don't you save your time with Bitcoin, right? Like this is kind of, and it's sort of like, it's imprecise in a, in a few ways, right? Or at least uh, let me take a shot and then I'll see how I want to hear how you would differ or agree or disagree. So the way I would answer that is I would say, look, money is the most saleable good. Right, like we think of it as the most sale. That's the way Menga explained it in the Origins of Money back in like 1871. And so, but the thing is, money doesn't have a stable purchasing power. So you can save money, and we can we can we can analogize to the idea of store of value. I think most people are comfortable with that idea. But I think the danger might be that if you thought that you could store your time in Bitcoin, it's not gonna like let's say I store my time into Bitcoin, uh, you know, in 2022. It's not, there's no guarantee of like what that will be in 2025 or whatever, right? Like we just, we just don't know that because the purchasing power, and even if you think in terms of purchasing power, that is changing all the time too. So that's how I would 
critique that notion? I'm curious how you would. No, yeah, absolutely right. And it's very close to the Bitcoiners energy angle where it's like Bitcoin is digital energy, like Bitcoin allows you to store energy over time or transport it from one place to another. So that's similar kind of moniker is very close to, I think, yeah, the storing of, of time. Like it's just the different resources being referred to instead of energy. You know, it is, you know, it's time. And there's a few memes to that digital energy piece as well. So, I mean, if we kind of slightly segue into that, like Bitcoin obviously well, doesn't allow one to store, transport or transfer energy, of course. Although, yes, absolutely miners use energy to create Bitcoin, but they, you know, cannot convert that Bitcoin back into energy used to create it uh, at another time or another place. So the energy used to create Bitcoin in Sydney today um, cannot then be used to heat a house in Sydney next year or a power a stove in Melbourne today because it was used already used to create Bitcoin in Sydney. There's no getting that energy back now, <laughs> right? We, I think mean, that's fairly understood, but it's it's recognizing that Bitcoin miners might use energy that might otherwise would have been used. So recognizing that fact that Bitcoin is miners use might use energy that otherwise would have been wasted elsewhere doesn't change that fact. And that kind of does dovetail into the, the Bitcoin is a battery meme. And so there's a, there's a great article that, of the same name, essentially with ba- ba- Bitcoin is not a battery by William uh, Luther. And like, yes, it is a metaphor and yes, energy is used to create Bitcoin, but they can spend that Bitcoin at some point. And yes, it can be used to be spent in the future. That energy is put in, but you can't get that energy back out directly. But it's, it's again, that it, Bitcoin is on a battery. It's not stero- storing energy. Rather, it, you could, yeah, like I think stores value, but value is subjective. And <laughs> so there's like an almost a slight danger in that as well. But the, na- the name the green kind of like leads um, many to believe that the source of Bitcoin's value is the energy used to create it, which kind of goes yeah. to like cost theory of value. So like where, you know, a good cousin of the, the labor theory of value, it's like, right. whoa, like yeah. that's why, you know, right. that's where Bitcoin gets its value from. And that's, there's a danger there. It's putting the horse before the cart a bit where, you should, as a general rule, you know, never reason from cost to value. It's the other way around. You should always reason from value to cost, which should be obvious. Yeah. And also related, I think it would be good for you to touch on this, is this idea that, oh, um, like, and I, I can understand where this comes from, right? So the argument might come, some, like, the no-coiner will say, Bitcoin is not backed by anything. And then the Bitcoiner, there's some Bitcoiners who say, oh, no, but it's backed by the energy, you know? And it's like, no, backed by typically means you can redeem, right? It means I can, you know... Like there's no central counter that I can take my Bitcoin to and redeem into energy. Yes, I can use Bitcoin to buy energy, but I don't think it's precise to say Bitcoin is you know backed by the energy consumption or the miners, right? In that sense. Yes, and it's almost like so. This is when we kind of get to a point of how do we categorize categorizing Bitcoin um, from an Austrian or from I think which I think is the best way to do it is a rivalrous digital commodity uh, on an open source monetary network. And to speak to your point. It's like, what's, you know, another talking about a, a, another commodity. So like, oh, what's co- gold backed by? Well, it's like, it's the commodity itself. Like it, it is the, and so with Bitcoin, it's not a claim on something else. It's not, you know, credit money. It is the rival, dig, rivalrous digital commodity itself. And yeah, asking what's it backed by kind of indicates you don't, don't understand what it is, I th- you know, which is what, obviously what's the case with, you know, the new coiners or, or pre-coiners questioning it. But I think it's a wrong answer as you indicate to, to refer then to the energy like yes that is um you know an input into it um and there's a cost involved for that 
but it's still, you know, ultimately talk about Mises regression theorem um, there where it's traced back to at certain point in terms of a commodity, you know, its origins as a medium of exchange, you can trace it back. And and I think Conrad Graf's take is eventually, it convinced yeah. me what was the, the best it's actually Bitcoin's the best example of that that theorem, Mises regression theorem. Yeah, and I think it really squared the circle really well back in 2013 with that on the origins of Bitcoin. Um, yeah, but but go back. Sorry, go back to your point. Yeah, so elaborating about like summarizing, so cat trying to categorize Bitcoin. Um, so yes, the top line summary, I think, is like it's a rivalrous digital commodity on an open source monetary network. But Conrad kind of goes through as a, you know, one, yes, it's like it's an economic good. Two, it's a rival good, which is a subtype of scarce good and if we want to kind of elaborate that so like a define a non-rival good is a good that is copyable with perfect remainder of the original and usable by multiple actors simultaneously without mutual interference and then a rival good so like yes the blockchain essentially like you know it's uh, but a rival good is a good that is not copyable with perfect remainder uh, that's not copyable with the perfect remainder of the original and is not usable by multiple actors simultaneously without mutual interference between physically incompatible uses and it's the in the broad economic sense the word scarcity can can encompass both rival and non-rival goods but yeah so kind of it nails that down and then three it's a type of rival good known as a commodity as we've elaborated and then four it's a new type of commodity called a digital commodity and then five which is really is it's a digital monetary commodity um, with unprecedented monetary characteristics and yeah, it kind of it creates like an almost new asset class, but there is a, a very handy image from Guido Holzman's book, A Theory of Money and Fiduciary Media uh, that updates um, a theory of money and credit in terms of there were some mistranslations for Mises' book. And so like credit, theory of money and credit, credit really should be probably translated into fiduciary media. And uh, we can kind of go into that a little bit later, but there's a lovely chart there that maybe we'll have in the show notes um, or I can look yeah, to yeah. try try describe. But within that, it's kind of a taxonomy of, of money and we get to very specific breakdowns of, of where Bitcoin sits and you've got like commodity money, there's the precious metals, and then below that there's Bitcoin, which is kind of a rivalrous digital commodity. It's new uh, on the scene, and, and uh, but I think it's the most accurate way to categorize it. Back to the show in a moment. Build on L2 is a community for Bitcoin builders by Blockstream. So this initiative, it's a community-led effort by contributors and companies building on Core Lightning and the Liquid Network. It's an interactive community platform. There will be builders ranging from product managers, designers, engineers, testers, all coming together through events, and there'll be a mentorship program to fast-track success or simply explore the community space to learn something new alongside other Bitcoiners building the future of Bitcoin Layer 2. So sign up now. You can get early access on the platform. The website is buildonl2.com. That's L and then to the number dot com. When it comes to Bitcoin transactions, mempool.space is my favorite Bitcoin block explorer. It's a multi-layer ecosystem and mempool.space is helping show this. You can see mempools, you can see the blockchain, you can see the second layer networks like Lightning Network and search the Lightning Network as well. So you can see what Lightning nodes are out there, what fees they're charging. You can see the on-chain UTXOs that relate to those Lightning channels also. So it's very comprehensive. With mempool.space, you don't even have to trust a third party. You can host it yourself. 
And if you're with an enterprise, mempool.space offers custom mempool instances with your company's branding, increased API limits, and more. It's a very popular block explorer, arguably the most popular in the community. So it's great exposure there. So go to mempool.space slash enterprise if you're interested. And finally, Unchained Capital. They are helping you with multi-signature to secure your coins and remove single points of failure. Now, for the time period coming up to the 25th of December, they are having the possibility to gift concierge onboarding. So if you have somebody in your life that you want to help make sure they are controlling their keys, Unchained can let you gift the concierge onboarding program where they will do a call, they'll ship the hardware, they'll teach you how to set up your vault and withdraw into your own multi-signature vault. So this can give you that peace of mind and help you remove single points of failure. So if you're interested in this program, go to unchained.com slash concierge. And now back to the show. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's important to get that classification correct because I think if you do, if you get that classification wrong, there's all these downstream errors or knock-on errors that happen from that. So for example, I agree with people like, let's say Michael Saylor, who would categorize a lot of the altcoins as securities. Like I think they qualify more like an equity. Mm. But the reason is Bitcoin, like Bitcoin is different because it's, it's, it's trying to be money and it's a specific kind of money, right? So for example... When you hold Bitcoin on your own keys, ideally verified with your own Bitcoin node, you just have so much more certainty about that, that you know for sure it's not an IOU. It's not a money certificate. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, it's, it is the thing. And I guess it's so hard to convey that, right? But how would you, like, you agree, disagree, or how would you, how would you put that? Yeah, absolutely. Like, and very much the distinction there's Bitcoin, you know, it's a, it's a rival digits, a rivalrous digital commodity. And looking at that framework, it's look, there's money in the broader sense. And then there's, uh, which we can kind of speaks about, you know, it's everything under the umbrella of there's money in the narrow sense. And then there's the, the clear cut distinction there is money substitutes. So you've got say money in the narrow sense, you've got commodity money, um, there is credit money and there's fiat money under that. But then under money substitutes, that's where, so like historically, you've obviously got the physical gold, the commodity money, but then money certificates would be like the piece of paper that's backed, say 100% bank deposit would be, uh, you know, the money certificate. It's, is, it's meant to be one-to-one. And then within the realm of money substitutes, there's also money certificates being 100% backed. And then you've got fiduciary media with a categorization is that, it's not backed, you know, freely at face value. So essentially the definition of money. FTX uh, Bitcoin. <laughs> it's exactly FTX right. FTX Bitcoin yeah. is fiduciary and, media. <laughs> and, and exactly right. And it gets into, there's the free bank, quote unquote, free bankers um, and um, Gammon. Uh, and then there's a variety out there that like an even a Bitcoin magazine article posted recently about how the answer is to to uh, I guess the the free banking trying to to jump on that bandwagon and like it's necessary you need a growing money supply to you know for for for, for civilization which is nuts but just bit back on yeah fiduciary exactly right like FTX and and when you the whole point of a Bitcoin is to remove trust and one of the whole point a bit a large point like the you're trusting you know financial institutions and with centralized exchanges exactly like FTX. Um, you know, Binance and, you know, others, it's, there's that risk that you're either at best going to have a, a money certificate. So some maybe could claim that where it's, you know, all the customer funds one-to-one, you know, hundred um, percent backed. And then, yeah, there's the fiduciary media angle where, Hey, that 
looks like you've got Bitcoin. It says you've got Bitcoin, but unless, yeah, as we know, you're not your keys, not your coins. And, and you know, if you don't have full control over that, um, that there's a big chance that it's fiduciary media. It's backed by, it doesn't, there's no real reserve there. Uh, it's, it's, um, essentially, uh, what is it? It's, you know, money substitute freely accepted at face value, which consists in claims to payment on demand for specified sums, but it's in excess of those reserves. So there's a few things there, but it's like, yeah, yeah. you're really risking it, not holding, yeah. like, why wouldn't you hold the asset yourself? Yeah. So I think on this point, I think it, it would be good to clarify then. So does it, in your view, does it come down to a debate then on like, let's say, whether that exchange is full reserve or fractional, whether it is a money certificate or whether it is a, whether it's fiduciary media, right? So as an example, if, I mean, the debate is going, is raging now about Binance. Is Binance fractional reserve? Are they, you know? So mm. would you qualify that then as a bank deposit or a money certificate? Like let's say you, let's say you deposit one Bitcoin to Binance. And I think we can probably all agree one, if you deposited one Bitcoin with FTX, well, Sorry, bad luck. It's fiduciary media. Like they clearly have, you know, they were running some kind of Ponzi or fraud operation. But in the case mm. of, let's say, a Binance, does it turn on whether they actually have the coins? Yeah, great question. And it's certainly, you know, I've had these discussions um, with some fractional reserve um, proponents, uh, free banking proponents who look at like striking the root. Okay, what's in the contract? But this is the, the often the, the heated point is, so um, speaking with some of the fractionals of bank, I was like, yes, FTX, like a, a clear cut example of, you know, there's rehypothecation, like the contract stating that they, um, you know, customer funds are theirs and then they've gone and violated that essentially and committed fraud and, you know, loaned out more than they don't, that they don't actually have or sold, but that they, you know, Bitcoin that they don't actually have. And so, yeah, it's, it kind of comes down to, yeah, really looking at the contract, but but almost a given, even with that, say, bank, so like the, the current banking establishment, right? Um, so a fractional reserve banking, um, you know, has been in full effect for, 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 for many, many uh, decades. It's even then, customers who have, say, signed the contract, there's a good study, like empirical study that looked at in, in the UK banking and, and, you know, polled, you know, 10,000 people. And the question were several, it's like, do you, you know, do you think you own the funds in your bank account? Like 70% were like, yes, absolutely. That's my money. Like a demand deposit, like that I can uh, demand my money back at any time. It's like, a, it's like a savings account essentially. And then the other contrast and given this debate is a term deposit where like, yes, there's no problem. If I agree to contract, I give that to the bank and I know I'm not going to use it. And there's a certain period of time they can loan that out. There's nothing wrong with a term deposit or time deposit. But where the fraud comes in with fractional reserve banking, customers, people think that, oh, no, this is a, I'm just a savings account. It's my money. I'm, you know, I own it. I can control it. They can't loan that out. But on the contract in the current state, the, the state is essentially enabled this kind of fraud to uh, exist um, given a state approval. Uh, and that's like essentially the, the modern banking system um, where they can take people's impressions of term deposits or like their demand deposits, sorry, their, their money and the banks then can land it out willy-nilly. And so looking at FTX and exchanges, like, okay, specifically probably what is on the contract, but absolutely I, even after Rothbard has a quip, even after months of him, you know, dr drilling into his students that, you know, the bank, given the banking system is like, it's not there, like it's not your, 
it's not yours. Like it, essentially people still think and feel that it is. So it's a hard thing to, to overcome, but the real solution is like, again, it's a, there's a trust element that gets reintroduced. It's unnecessary. Things like BISC exist, you know, decentralized exchanges that are still on chain and verifiable, non-custodial. I do think there is a, a, a spectrum. So obviously there's, you know, institutions that allow auto withdrawal that, you know, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be far better than, you know, the alter, other alternatives, you know, so there's a less risk, you know, potentially, but yeah, there's, there's a slight spectrum. It's either, but within that, like, yes, the, the one-to-one, you know, say non-custodial, you know, or, or fully backed, maybe it's multi-sig signature, it's there, um, you know, verifiable. And then there's the, the 0% tokens in fiduciary media where, it's not, uh, and I more often <laughs> right. than not, I, I'd almost it's it's not, and partly this is as well. Like you see some of the pushback, you know, Twitter, like, oh, you know, it's why are people giving you notes know, fud on Binance or whatever. It's like, no, like if it's actually there, there's there's no risk to insolvency if they're one to one. Like it's like, okay, you're paying fee. I'm getting fees from you with you know either withdrawing or you know then going to come back on. You know, if if there's they're they're solvent. It's it's not it's a non-issue, but if they are insolvent and the, there's a run on the banks, you know that that's certainly an issue, uh, and you don't want to be the last person you know in that line to get your funds out or hope that that they, they are there. Yeah, or your funds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, it's, right, it's exactly right. So even still, like it's hard to <laughs> uh, to, to, yeah. to get out of, and yeah. so you so, really it's not yeah. yours. It's not Bitcoin. It's um, paper Bitcoin. It's you know almost like say on oh, an example like um, Binance B dash BTC, you don't have Bitcoin you, <laughs> unless yeah. you've got the keys. And I think this is an interesting point as well, because this is where the fractional reserve comes in, right? Is it particularly if those fiduciary claims trade around and circulate in the economy as though they were Bitcoin. And I think that's probably the crucial thing. And I've spoken about this on the podcast many times, even with Michael Goldstein and others, but that's the crucial thing that, let's say a Kraken Bitcoin is not treated the same as an FTX Bitcoin, as a Binance Bitcoin, as a Swan Prime Trust Bitcoin, as a, like each of those things should be treated separately as a Mt. Gox Bitcoin for what it's worth, right? Like each of those things Mm. should be treated separately and Bitcoin that you hold in your own wallet is actually Bitcoin, right? That you have self-custodied. And I think that's an important point for the community to appreciate and keep them separate. And I think it's fair to point out, I think this is like the full reserve case, let's say, that these fractional reserve casinos don't survive long-term without a bailout, without a, you know, daddy government coming in to bail them out. Exactly right. And, and that was, uh, you know, question posed in the, the Mises seminar, um, Australia group and one of the, the, the gents there going, well, we used to have these epic debates, fractional reserve banking, like, you know, it's almost a, a, a dead horse you have to beat like 10 years ago, just all the rage, like that was the topic. And, you know, we've, we're hashing those things out, but it was almost like this is a use case in essence of the you know quote unquote free market the you know the wild west if you want with with crypto uh, and and not so much state intervention uh, yet and what have we seen like these exchanges they don't last long like there's a run on the banks and Rothbard used to talk about like having like anti bank vigilante leagues where people would encourage like hey you know oh this bank you know doesn't have funds and like trying to encourage you know, actively like a bank run runs, on the bank. basically yeah yeah bank runs and similarly here we can see well i guess the beauty of the internet that can happen a lot quicker and faster but it's again yeah if you don't there's nothing wrong 
if it's actually solvent, like those funds being withdrawn and it's a system, that, you know, indirectly cleansing itself, like shouldn't happen to begin with. And that's why I'm a big yeah, proponent of BISC um, and like things like that, where there's that non you know, what, what BISC does to, what Bitcoin did to the state, like separation money state, Bitcoin does with exchanges essentially of separating that need for, for trust. So yeah, hold it yourself, you know, no, there's there's nothing but risk for um uh I think much more risk than you know keeping it on the exchanges. Yeah, and just more maybe more of an academic point, but I I'm curious if you view something like LBTC as a money certificate because this is a system where you can verify every Bitcoin that has gone in. So if you can see oh whatever, let's say there's a thousand Bitcoins locked into liquid and LBTC is controlled by a multi-sig. So obviously it's not self-custodial. It is controlled by that multi-sig of the federations basically. But I think fundamentally it would count as a money certificate, right? Because we know 100% you can uh, like 100% it is verifiably backed by Bitcoin. So each LBTC is a money certificate for one Bitcoin. Yes. I'd say yes. So money like under the categorization, yeah. Categorization and you got money certificates and then Within that, yeah, it, it's a how is it being treated on the market essentially, and so I think as a con- to contrast, LBTC was a liquid with say Lightning, and right. I think Lightning is operating on a one to one, you know, with Bitcoin. So you got in this framework, you got on the 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 money in narrow sense, Bitcoin itself is you know the the rivalrous digital commodity it's it's on the far left there as a commodity money yeah uh, and then you have within the money substitute side the, the and then specifically money certificates uh then a new category which would be lightning on its own where it's a one-to-one with with bitcoin essentially you know lightning is essentially is is treated as bitcoin now lbtc I think is maybe just because of that trust element right, under yeah. the federation. Because it's not self-custody, yeah. Yeah, it is, is why it might not be as one-to-one or maybe it's not getting such play and treated as. So like for anyone asking themselves like, I could have Bitcoin or kind of Lightning. It's like, yeah, sure, right? Like it's, you know, where there's no real feeling of objections there really. And then uh, we could have Bitcoin or, you know, LBTC. Uh, you know, maybe there's some very, you know, niche use cases or like you know traders or people who have like oh yeah absolutely but for the vast majority of folks i think it's like ah oh, no there's an element of trust there it's not one-to-one yeah. like maybe it'd be closer to it but so i'd still say yeah as a money certificate you know maybe it's like still that quote unquote 100 bank deposit piece but there's like this this newer or the the category of lightning i'd probably put it slightly different where it, where it is currently being traded as one-to-one yeah, right. Look, at the end of the day, what we hold when I hold, when let's say I have a Lightning channel with you, what we really hold is a pre-signed Bitcoin transaction. It's a valid pre-signed transaction that we can broadcast to the network to claim back any coins. So, you know, it's just a matter of being able to get your transaction confirmed in the mempool. So, I mean, theoretically, it probably just counts as the same as Bitcoin on chain. It's just, there is a security trade-off though there is an aspect where you need to be able to get that transaction confirmed you know hypothetically so that is there but you know i think it's probably fair to say it's what the market's treating it as and for most people yeah it's uh it's one-to-one essentially if it's seen as interchangeable yeah although that's it i mean there are a perfect money substitute yeah but even then there are let's say exchanges where you can swap between and yes they charge a fee but it's kind of like that maybe that's more like the operational aspect of having to swap between on-chain and lightning or kind of the 
liquidity flows and being able to like paying your, what you're paying for is that certain liquidity or certain channel um, being open to you from this direction, let's say. Mm. Yeah, so it may be a bit more complicated. But um, okay, so let's move on. Uh, we got to chat about uh, this whole, you know, Bitcoin is violent, or I think he, he has uh, shifted away from that term a bit. And I think he's now going for this idea of Bitcoin as a weapon. So what do you think about that? Yes. <laughs> um, look, it's uh, ideas are important. And, and like, you know, there's a, it's the narratives set the frame, setting the frame is such a, a big, big thing in terms of Blackwood movements and how things are, are characterized. Look, I'm not going to, um, I was going to try and start a clip. There's this like Rothbard on Keynes. Uh, it's like a 30 second clip. And it's like, look, this is a preemptive strike, you know, against critics, like he's like, oh, I'm using an ad hominem. And it's like an ad hominem argument is like obviously attacking the person. And he goes like, and this is a clip he's talking about Keynes. He's like, no, first, you know, I'll attack the arguments and then the person. And there's a, there's a lot of laughter and chuckles. But look, so my, my approach is obviously like being intellectual, honest, honest and open to reason. And, you know, there's a very, so we'll, I think, specifically address some of the arguments, but, um, and then get towards the more probably why from a personal angle, like, he sees the, the certain individual uh, sees sees things um, in you know, through the lens of violence or like you know Bitcoin being a weapon, um, but yeah, I, I think I'm being very heartened by the plebs in terms of you can who've done the proof of work essentially like proof of work from them understanding Austrian economics praxeology, those who've done that work get it and they can see very easily how. Um, you know, it's an obvious tack vector from the state to cat, like for it to, or at least setting that up, you know, even whether the intentions are that or not. Um, but that being the, the consequence, um, you know, almost inevitable consequence uh, of that narrative. Um, so yeah, completely absurd. And really it gets to, you know, we can talk about, you know, we talked about epistemology, like going from first principles, uh, he's, you know, indicated that's what he's doing but it it's we know that's not the case so it's very um you know scientific approach where you know appeals to physics and it's like that's you know there's no use for economics um you know quote unquote doesn't work um and look you can try and give benefit of the doubt in terms of uh, if he's referring to economics in you know what we've previously critiqued is not economics um but it's not that's not the case like there's no actual understanding of epistemology there's a different methodological approach for the social sciences and natural sciences and what he does is often like you know partly of what this line you know framing it as violence or as a weapon it blurs a line between voluntary and aggression uh and you know he uses a physics definition of force but then conflates that with you know within the realm of of human sciences um and so we can kind of there's the epistemological approach, which is like the foundations are essentially invalid. And it's like everything that kind of goes on top of that, you know, we, we can dress like address as like whack-a-mole a little bit, but if it's like your, your premises are incorrect, you know, invalid, then so are the arguments built on top of it. And that's partly a little bit of like, you know, there's a great clip from Hopper. It's about how to talk to address Paul Krugman. Right. And it's, you know, we don't, the trouble is you shouldn't get into technicalities about, you know, uh, the kind of Keynesian modeling and stuff. It's like as simple as like speaking to a, as if you're speaking to a child, like how does, yeah. you know, increase in the money, you know, pieces of paper in society you know, for money, you know, increase society's wealth. And similarly a little bit with, 
with with this as the, the narrative of Bitcoin is violence, it's like how is running a node like you know choose individual action voluntarily choosing to um, you know adopt a savings technology or a rivalrous digital commodity um, you know mining that like it's just absurd uh, on the face of it. And I know a lot of supporters are you know of his or sees. I don't think have done the work. The vast majority, I, I think, if they hear this narrative and it kind of makes sense, um, but when you do have the backing of you know the Austrian school and praxeology, you can kind of see quite clearly that the premises aren't aren't there and aren't valid. Yeah, so he seems to be making this idea that oh, see, if you if you qualify it as a weapon, maybe you can use this two A Second Amendment protection and this idea that somehow you know that's going to help stop the government from stopping bitcoin or intervening in bitcoin and that you know he sort of goes down he seems to have been going down this pathway of saying oh but governments are going to do mining somehow and to me it just seems like i saw that actually safety had a good thread on this also because he was saying look mining is a business like any other bitcoin mining to be clear it's a business like any other there's not a specific reason why a government would need to undertake mining because when you're mining it's not like you're just you know you're you're mining it's kind of like the overall network is being chronologized let's say you're kind of helping chronologize or help the validity of transactions as opposed to the security so it's not like some particular specific country has to mine in order to defend their own transactions or like it doesn't really work that way mm. and i think it's more precise to think of it as the node is what's defining the validity and the security of bitcoin as opposed to mining right so i think that's one area as well so that's kind of a high level of how i've seen his arguments but yeah anything you want to touch on there yeah no definitely um there's many, many. Um, so we've talked about yeah the, the first principles piece, and, and probably it's the frame that he. So it's like obviously that coming coming back to that simplified approach of like there's political means versus the voluntary means. You know, kind of goes back to Oppenheimer, but it seems like he's got almost a it's a it's a might is right framework. Talk about the power projection, and look, it's almost a a might is right, which is Ragnar Redbeard's kind of take, and Hopper gives a good breakdown of this it's like you can give two very different interpretations to that statement so you know obviously the first one he goes is you know there's i know the difference between might and right and as a matter of empirical fact might is in fact frequently right um and most if not all public law for instance is might masquerading as right and then he's the second interpretation is like well i don't know the difference between might and right uh, because there is no difference might and right is might and it's, it's the interpretation there is it's, he talks about self-contradictory because if you wanted to defend this statement as a true statement in an argument with someone else uh, you're in fact recognizing your opponent's property right in his own body uh, you do not aggress against him in order to bring him to the correct insight you know you allow him to come to the correct insight on his own and that's basically you admit implicitly that you do know the difference between might and right like right and wrong uh, otherwise there would be no purpose in arguing and so the same incidentally is true for Hobbes's kind of famous dictum that man, uh, that one man is another man's wolf. In claiming that statement to be true, you actually prove it to be false. And that, like, as a zo- zooming out, like, it's that, that kind of draws down uh, that strikes at the root of, I think, the underlying, you know, force philosophy that he lends. He looks everything, th- like, looks through for everything. Um, one example is like part of the. There's a particular series he has, which I, you know, there's a thread I um, paints, <laughs> I always walk line by line, essentially, 
Henry Hazlitt approach um, to the fair of new economics, where it's like a line by line refutation of Keynes. Yeah. Um, did the same take. And look, one call out was he has Lowry saying, all law, the thing that predates all law, the military that exerts the power to establish is essentially the, the military exerts power to establish the rule of law. Contrast to you know, Bastiat and property in law. It's like property does not exist because there are laws, but laws exist because there is property. So like he's got, again, flipped it completely around the wrong way, but also honing in more on that. So he talks about like an agrarian society, you know, and what he's really dancing around, not particularly aware of in his thesis, I think he's talking about the origin of the state and really whether it's exogenous, so conquest versus endogenous or internally. And the answer is endogenous it's internal um so how the states come about um so he erroneously claims exogenous or conquest uh so hopper talks about this best in political economy and of monarchy and democracy and he's like yeah it's difficult to accept but historically like natural elites you know uh you know being around and with in terms of a monarchy he's like this is the the fundamental sociological insight and that is that the maintenance and preservation of private property-based exchange uh, exchange economy requires, as its sociological presupposition, the existence of a voluntary acknowledge, acknowledged natural elite. Now, the natural outcome of this voluntary transactions between various private property owners is non-egalitarian. So he kind of talks about its hierarchy um, as elitist. But the issue is that... Um, over time, so these individuals who've got, you know, superior achievements of wealth, wisdom, bravery, and a combination thereof, you know, they kind of become a possessor natural authority. So when you've got a conflict between two individuals, hey, let's go to this independent third party. This guy is, you know, the kind of the first among equals and he can give us his decision. And so over time, though, these heads of families uh, with long established records of superior achievement, far-sightedness and exemplary personal conduct that, that men go to for that, for their decisions or judgments of on they then essentially have you know quoting you know having a essential principled approach to justice but then what's happened is that over time so monarchy as opposed to so he goes on here is like in fact the endogenous origin of a monarchy as opposed to its exogenous origin via conquest cannot be understood except for the the background of a prior order of natural elites and then small but decisive step in that transition um, to Monica rule, the original sin per se, consisted precisely in the monopolization of the function of judge and peacemaker. So like they've, you know, through their skills and talents, like become the go-to person in society and then, you know, families and, you know, it's a tradition and then it's become, they've at some certain point monopolized that. And then from ever, for, for, so moving on from that, um, you know, law enforcement became more expensive you know, instead of being offered free of charge or as a voluntary payment. Um, and then, you know, it kind of goes on to um, how that eroded. Uh, and the issue, so that was like their downfall with democracy. Um, so the confusion that it caused, though, prevailed where people recognized that the problem lay, they didn't recognize that the problem lay with monopoly, but they thought it was with elites uh, and nobility. And so then, like, you know, democracy all about the people, um, you know, rising up. Um, so yeah, he's got a lot to say about that, but coming back to, um, <laughs> uh, I don't believe, uh, any of that is understood when he talks about like an agrarian society and the, the premises and the foundations he builds his, you know, kind of power projection thesis. It's, 
it's you know incorrect but then even more than that when you know there's it talks about the chain of custody for these assets is written in blood and there's like a you know, maybe add to the show notes so everyone's probably aware there's this like little diagram he has and it's you know there's several assets here he's referring to like land real estate gold oil equities you know none of those assets have a monetary premium he specifically says every one of these assets carries a monetary premium that we defend with human lives. But yet, none of those assets have a monetary premium anymore. Like gold essentially lost it. You know, we're not on the gold exchange standard anymore. You know, when I buy a house, you know, or, or some oil, like not written in blood, like when that voluntary exchange, like, you know, you think, oh, but what about Iraq war and whatever? Like, yep, that could have come from Texas, though. Like the oil just from Texas. Like, so it's not. A priori, it's not prior experience. Like there's rights violations potentially in some of this stuff, but not at the level that it's just ingrained is is what is the premise is. And yeah, so look, and he also goes on about when he talks about power, he literally means joules per second. You know, so where the question then becomes like, okay, political power, like, and for him, it's all about being able to plan ideas in other people so that they steer their joules, their energy. And it's like, okay, well, how much power does, like, what's the joules per second power of, you know, the POTUS, like president of the United States or like a politician? Like, it's comical, but coming down to the, so the, the second amendment argument, right? Like it's, again, it's very clear he's not read Rothbard's Anatomy of the State, you know, or Ethics of Liberty, like which talks about the inner contradictions of the state. It's almost you're destroying, it's a, it's a narrative. I really feel it's a, the second amendment case, it's, you know, his argument, it's a kind of a cover for a rationalization for the Bitcoin is violence or it's a weapon narrative. Now I can understand because he's paid by the state. He is this, you know, state employee. That's his employer. Like he's, he can see everything from that angle. Um, but out of the, out of the, the, the anatomy of the state and ethics of Liberty, it's, you know, if you understand any of that um, it's, it's pointing out like that the constitution will not be able to keep the government limited you know, it's a monopoly, the Supreme Court, you know, selected by the same self-government um, and grants the power, like they've been granted of the ultimate decision-making over, um, you know, all the political ends will favour always the, you know, a broader or loose interpretation of the wording of the constitution. And as you can see, like, you know, Lysander's bit of arguments, it's, it's been powerless to the constitution has been powerless to stop the growth of the state of the last 200 years. Like America has become the, you know, world's, um, you know, leading superpower despite, um, you know, the Bill of Rights and all that. Um, and so putting, it's almost like you're destroying the, the narrative or peaceful narrative around like savings technology on the pipe dream hope that you'll get a favorable court ruling from the, from state courts by state judges who are paid out of taxes and like whose incentives are completely aligned to continue such a system that spent their whole life in and sworn an oath to, you know, serve uh, as you'll get a favorable outcome for Bitcoin. Like uh, it's, it's absurd. Um, but even on top of that, like from a libertarian perspective, the second amendment is invalid from, uh, you know, is invalid from that, from that proper, proper point of view in that you don't have a right to guns. We have a right to private property. It's like speech as well. This gets conflated. You've got a First Amendment. You've got like a right to speech. It's like, no, you don't have a right to speech. You've got a right to private property to write, hire a hall, um, you know, make a blog and a website, like, you know, own the printing press. That's the rock solid foundation. Um, and so, yes, if a property owner, they, they can set the rules or, you know, it's only 
justifiable justifiable for them to set the rules on their property if they don't want to have any guns in their property that's their right like it's not necessarily wise um but you know you get this rich mosaic when you focus on private property rights and all these other areas where it's it's a rich mosaic of choice um and so even just the on the face of the second amendment argument appeal yeah it's 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 just a i find it incredibly hard to feel to think that someone's genuine that um i mean i kind of stand you know you are in the military and that's your worldview and you know he calls himself a spook and you know he puts it out there but it's almost like owning it um is trying to diffuse it uh and even if his intent is genuine and that's actually worse it's almost like you're doing the job of the political ruling elite you know deep state for free and i'm sure like <laughs> if, if, yeah. if you were if you had like all these alphabet letter agencies just think about it. like if you're trying to run a psyop which we know exists uh has existed it's like and you're trying to get the bitcoin as violence narrative out there bitcoin is a weapon going like i don't see how it would play out much differently to what it how it has and yeah you know it's, yeah. it's regardless of, you know, what the intent is like, okay, the consequence is pretty clear cut. And from him to, okay, he wants to get invited to the White House and it chase the clout, chase the career. Yeah. You know? There's all that personal things. You could, it's like almost that can be irrelevant. It's, it's again, comes down to the premises, which we can point to, you know, like his, it's almost the nation state, like it's a national security issue, but it's Bitcoin is critical for national security is kind of said, it's like, if you can, there's a distinction between nation state and nation. So like the American people, amazing nation state, like the American government, like hell no. Like why would you want to have them hold the asset that Bitcoin is for, and to like get enriched by like, you know, with hyper Bitcoinization and you're empowering the ruling elite uh, or the, the, the ruling class versus the ruled. So like you're wanting to encourage your nation getting better ahead. If that's the case, it's not encouraging the nation state to get more empowered in mind Bitcoining. It's to create laws that allow your citizens to get the benefits of that, get out of the way, set private property rights, like a proper framework. Um, and yeah, it's, it's like you, you understanding that this proper class analysis of rules versus ruled can really set the, the scene. And that's why I think so many plebs get it, but certain individuals don't and it's funny you see those that tend to be promoting you know, Dennis Porter or whatever it's like their policy their you know Washington whatever like they're talking to politicians that's their world they it's like another narrative that they can you kind of push and get some some carry some favor with but to me it's like a, there's a, that Trojan horse meme you know Bitcoin is in a citadel essentially and you got Larry kind of like offering in the Bitcoin is violence or Bitcoin is a weapon narrative and most uh, you know, Bitcoiners are, are well aware and crypt with the proof of work they've done of understanding yeah. philosophy and yeah. economics. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, I'll stop ranting, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you there, like in terms of the libertarian analysis and obviously starting from the framework of private property, right? Obviously, I'm, you know, I'm with you there. Now, I'm curious your view. Do you think, like if you had to talk to a statist, do you think it's better to use the 1A, the First Amendment, and kind of frame Bitcoin as speech, right? Like it's a message. My node is sending a transaction to you. It is a cryptographic message. Do you agree with that idea? Or how would you try to, if you're talking to a statist? Yeah, I'd, I'd be like, what's your, what, try and figure out what their end goal is, the, the end is, and how Bitcoin can can help cater to that if yeah like you're talking the courts i think at well if you're trying to appeal 
you know, on their terms, um, you know, making a legal case, like, you know, in a defensive nature, um, I think certainly the Bitcoin is, is speech or co- narrative is far superior to a second amendment approach. Um, but again, it, it's like, it's a rivalrous digital commodity. Like it's, I think that just nailing down that it, it is simply, you know, then yeah. the whole narrative of, you know, it's a weapon or whatever it's like, it's, it's almost, you can see it's like, you know, saying the same thing about gold is like, okay, you're crazy, mate. Like no one's, it's not a narrative that gets anywhere. Um, and so it's like by blurring these lines and definitions, like, and almost seemingly getting really technical language. But if we bring it back to the simple case, it's like, it's voluntary, you know, it's... Yeah, the framing matters. It does. And hopefully I'm trying to convey a bit of that. Yeah, because if it's framed like this idea of, it's savings technology. You use it to protect yourself and your family, but it's not a weapon per se, right? Like it's, you know, it's like if I stop funding somebody, am I attacking them? Well, no, I, it's more like I'm choosing to put my funds elsewhere. Like I'm choosing to put finance some other thing instead of like, let's say there's a very violent man who thinks he controls the neighborhood and he purports to rule over the neighborhood and I have some way to withdraw my funding from him and put it towards my family instead, am I somehow attacking him or is it a weapon that I'm using against him? Not really, right? Mm. Like it's only in a very loose analogy that you could even argue that. That it's at best, it's like a very, very loose analogy and really it's not the right way to categorize what's going on there, right? Yeah, like it's only like if you say <laughs> you're... you're target audiences say want you know gun nuts or whatever or like you know and i'm uh, you know no issue with with that but as a wider narrative like it's almost the population you, you know just understanding of like using that term or anything he tries to he's almost tried to walk it back recently and i've recently you know i think because of the pushback it's like a oh no it wasn't really many this way i mean you know i haven't used that for over a year uh you know that phrasing but it's very strongly implied in terms of it's like Recently, again, it's peer, he calls it a peer-to-peer electro-cyber warfighting protocol, you know, soft war protocol. And it's that the implications of that is like, yeah, it's like a weapon, right? Or it's, it's, it's violence is the imagery. It's how people fight. It's how people do warfare. And it's yeah. just not accurate yeah. in the slightest. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, I think we've done that topic. We've, uh, we've also got to chat a bit about this idea that, like, I think... I mean, I think we've covered a lot of the stuff, but I think one other area that that are, that would be good is this, just to explain for people, why does the money supply not have to expand along with the economy, right? Like there's, there's some people, and some of this is kind of coming back to what we were talking about with the fractional reserve people hmm. and the so-called free bankers, where they seem to buy into that idea. Like, you know, they seem to buy into this idea that somehow the money supply has to grow, otherwise the economy won't grow. And, you know, of course we have, like you said, that that standard hopper kind of, two-minute clip where he basically says look if printing more paper money tickets made us richer why why haven't we just gone and done that right like i guess that's that's kind of the simple way but do you understand like do you see where that this idea is coming from this notion that somehow the money supply has to grow in order for the economy to grow yeah and you're right like and his other point to that with hopper hopper clip it's like well it's been done like the the amount of printing of pieces of paper like quantum easing like trans dollars why isn't everyone you know um, a lot wealthier, right? Uh, <laughs> so if it worked, uh, well, if that's the case, that their premise is right, why hasn't it? And look, simplifying it is 
just it's I'm yet to see out of like the 15 plus years of of asking that simple question to to those that have this you know that premise to get a, a valid answer and it's, it's even particularly noting you talk about free bankers so like George Selgin uh you know Nick Carter's gone down that pathway of of it's like it's again it's kind of like a mind virus that you know the fractional reserve banking or the quote unquote free bankers where they do feel this need that there needs to be an increase in the money supply you know for society to be better off otherwise there's this you know devilish deflation um you know that that the society just can't uh you know can't can't function with um there's many myths there but it comes back to so like banking theory um Rothbard points out it's taken a took a very bad turn with the quantum rate free banking. Um, and it's really just the old currency and banking school arguments rehashed. And it's the doctrine there that the banking school doctrine that yeah, you business the needs of business require an expansion of money supply and and credit. And then moreover, that they essentially violate the the basic principle of Ricardian doctrine that every money supply, Every supply of money is optimal. So it's essentially like once the money, the market into money is established, a market in money is established, there's no no longer any need for for more money. And the key point is there. And so yes, like Mises and human action, you know, there's a quote I, I roll out a lot, is yeah, as the operation of the market tends to determine a final state of money's purchasing power at a height at which the supply of and the demand for money coincide, there can never be an excess or deficiency of money. Each individual and all individuals together always enjoy fully the advantages which they can derive from indirect exchange and the use of money, no matter whether the total quality of money is great or small. Uh, the services which money renders can be either improved nor repaired uh, by changing the supply of money. So the quantity of money available in the whole economy is always sufficient or secure for everyone uh, and all that money does and can do. And so it's like, even if for instance, taking Bitcoin, there's you know everything's doubled. So like it's uh, the there's 42 million Bitcoin, and um, you know everything else like translates down you know in terms of uh, 20 minute blocks or like you know every you know, the, the time framing. If all that was the case, and this little supply schedule is like um, it doubles as it as it's you know uniquely goes down, the purchasing power of money like as it is getting adopted would you know, reflects that maybe naturally the price, whatever it is now, would be double, but that's in fiat terms. Or, you know, whatever it is, there's still supply and demand that impacts it and purchasing power. So people mostly talks about it. They don't you don't want units of money. It's it's like what it what it's what that can purchase, like in terms of goods and services. Yeah. Um yeah. So it's it is one way to think about it probably is is um you know, I guess the impact of the money supply and if something's already established as illustrative of like talking about inflation, about how some of that can be stolen, that purchasing power um, through legal tender laws. Uh, a, a lovely analogy, it's there's a DuckTales episode actually um, where Scrooge has got his like pile of gold, money, and then the the other little guys um, have a... A particular ray gun that doubles can double things and almost like you know think of an angel like everyone in society you've got your bank accounts and overnight an angel comes and doubles the money supply everyone's bank accounts are doubled um, those who woke up first in the morning would you know oh wow what's this uh you know going to go out and spend that um and the prices might not initially reflect that like they won't they'll be different you know 
a different different prices rising in different areas and different sectors of the economy. Um, and then as people wisen up, you know, you're at the end of the day and word's gotten out, you know, there's a general tendency like the the cost of everything would have, would have doubled. Um, so yeah, it's uh, look, speaking specifically about they feel this need that, you know, and often a confusion it comes from to like talk about credit. So, you know, Nick Carter and others are like go, go on a little, you know, off rants uh, based on nothing against Rothbard, you know, type type folks such as myself and yourself or reservists that, you know, we're against credit. We're against credit. And it's like, no, we're, you know, there's commodity credit, which is backed, you know, savings backed by real things. And then there's, yeah, fiduciary media. Circulation credit. Yeah, yeah circulation credit. So there's nothing that's wrong with... um. Yeah, that's the the contrast Mises has, like commodity credit versus circulation credit. And with circulation credit being, you know, it's credit extended by banks in the form of bank notes or, you know, demand deposits, but as opposed to credit. So it's credit extended by banks in the form of bank notes or demand deposits, especially created for this purpose, as opposed to the credit granted by the loan of a bank of its own funds or funds deposited by its customers and so the extension of circulation credit makes available to borrowers newly created funds, which do not uh, decrease or restrict the funds available to anyone as they do in the commodity credit. So it's like, if this is someone's not you be able to use something in commodity credit and circulation credit, you know, which is what he refers it's to being as ex nihilo created. Yeah. Right? Credit expansion. That's what he's again. So just to explain that. So the idea is, let's say, um, you know, you've got Konza bank and you're a full reserve bank and I come and deposit, you know, my hundred well, 100,000 sats or whatever, right? But the idea is if I'm giving them to you in a term deposit, I have relinquished control. And so now we're in a full reserve context. You can go lend out that 100,000 sats or whatever to somebody else because I've relinquished mm. control. That's the crucial difference. In a fractional system, it would be kind of like, I still think I have access to it, but actually you've actually also gone and issued out credit to somebody else. And we both think we can access those coins or sats and spend them freely. But that's where the problem, where we run into this problem, because even though there's only 21 million Bitcoin or just under, we're acting as though it's not like that. And that is what Mises calls, like he says, that's the reason for the business cycle. That's the Austrian business cycle theory. So um, I think that's kind of the easy, simple way to understand that distinction, commodity credit versus circulation credit. And of course, Caitlin Long has also been very vocal yep. about that too over the years, as have all the other, you know, full reserve people like yourself, myself, Safetyne and others out there. And I think that's the biggest attack vector as well, like the biggest risk going forward. So you see, oh, Fidelity's got a new app or something and it's like, oh, you can buy Bitcoin. But it's like, well, can you own can you withdraw it? Can you actually own it? Like you have the keys to that. And moving forward, uh, that's why we've got to encourage a run on the run on the exchanges, um, withdraw those funds, use BISC, you know, peer-to-peer -peer stuff. It's you go to the ones that are, you know, the least trusting you require, the better. Um, and own them yourself, you know, have your own node. It's it's key to with minimizing their ability to do that. Yeah. So I, it, it kind of remains to be seen where it all goes. But I think, like as our friend Pierre Richard would say, we are obsoleting the fractional reserve system here. So we're going to be moving into a world where people, they just simply don't use as much of this fiat credit like they do today. And so I think that's where it's difficult for some people who are still trapped in the old paradigm. And I think maybe people like George Gammon are kind of in that paradigm where even though he is mostly libertarian and mostly free market, he seems to be still trapped in this idea that you need the money supply to expand for, again, similar reasons that we've 
we've gone into, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's got a comment. It's like frack reserve Bitcoin, you know, would be IOUs. And then, you know, his comments about, you know, if each IOU is fungible, you increase money supply. And he's like, it's so it's simple. Either you have a fixed money supply or you have fractional reserve, but you can't claim to have both. And like, yeah, as we've broken down, you know, it's not, if you've got Bitcoin on exchange, quote unquote Bitcoin on exchange, it's not Bitcoin, it's fiduciary media or, you know, it's not money in the narrow sense or money proper. Um, you don't have the rivalrous digital commodity itself. Uh, it's quote unquote um, Bitcoin or, you know, it's 100% money certificate at best. At worst, fiduciary media, it's literally backed by nothing, a 0%, you know, token coin of sorts. Uh, it's been re-apothecated. Um, so don't fall victim to the fiat games uh, that are being played uh, would be my suggestion. And there's a lot of uh, alternate ways to 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 take take control and, and don't reintroduce trust. Like the very first sentence of Satoshi's white paper in is uh, in the abstract even is it's a, you know, what's Bitcoin? It's a purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash would allow uh, online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. So yes, again, naturally some do it better than others, like instant withdrawals, you know, so there's a bit of a spectrum, not, you know, not custodial type stuff, but very much encouraged, you know, folks, you know, using BISC and that type stuff where, you know, it's all, all verifiable, uh, and, you know, peer to peer, get go get to those local meetups. Um, if there, you don't have one, start one. Uh, I, I think it that this parallel kind of, uh, uh, you know, making our own economy, especially with seeing some like the world economic world economic forum, you know, what's kind of coming out, like the plans are, uh, there's nothing but good come from, uh, you know, meeting with like-minded folk, um, you know, discussing those ideas, these ideas and, and really like different offshoots of skills and division of labor. You know, we've got Bitcoin meat groups, you know, direct connection to the farmers. There's all these other different rabbit holes and, you know, we can all go down, but um, couldn't, I know you push the, the community uh, angle a lot and yeah, couldn't agree more how vital that is. Yeah, fantastic. Well, look, I think we've been going for a while, so probably a good spot to wrap up. Any final closing thoughts for people and uh, where can people find you online? Just Konza on the, in the Twitter sphere. Also YouTube, you know, if you're Australian, like look at mises.org.au, so M-I-S-E-S.org.au. So like um, from a few seminars way back, we had Hopper out, uh, Walter Block, Jeffrey Tucker, there's, you know, 50 odd lectures with an Australian context there or um, principle timeless universal stuff that isn't going out of date and call out is yes get get your your quote unquote bitcoin off the exchanges so you can verify you've you've got bitcoin itself fantastic thanks Konza. thanks stefan I hope you found this episode informative and useful. You can get the show notes over at stefanlevera.com slash 443. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the Citadels. 